0: What's up, my friends? We got a great show for you today on a topic we never covered before. We're joined by Acre Traders Carter Malloy, who's back for his third appearance on the show, and Mark Foley, who joined Acre Trader a little over a year ago as their director of Timberland Investments. That's right. In today's episode, we're talking all about Timberland. Carter starts the show updating us on Acre Trader and the huge success they've had with over 120 properties and $300 million on their platform. That's a lot of dirt. Then we dive into their expansion to offer Timberland Investing to investors. Mark covers the uniqueness of the asset class, what the opportunity set is like both in the U.S. and around the globe, and where it fits in in your portfolio. As we wind down, Carter shares what else the company working on, including their new data tool called Acres. It's sort of like uh, Zillow for farmland. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Ycharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. Ycharts' report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors, and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YChart's comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Carter Malloy and Mark Foley. Carter and Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Great to see you again. So listeners, it's been a minute, Carter. Um, I was trying to think when last time uh you were on the show and the realize the reason I realized it was longer is because I've seen you in person since, which was at the Acre Trader Conference in Arkansas. Are you guys still doing that? How's uh give us an update? When's the next conference?
1: We are. So we did it uh last November. We're evaluating if we're gonna do it on a every year cycle or every other year cycle. Quite frankly, conferences are just a pretty big pain in the butt to put on. And so trying to determine what's the best outcome for for our investors and the farmers we work with to get together.
0: Well, you know, it's funny because I have been to a lot of conferences in my day, try to do less. I actually just got back from one in Park City. But you guys, I was actually talking about your conference because I said you guys did a very good job of it because the right ones balance the actual content. You know, so you guys do a little bit where you're talking about farmland investing and then actual social and immersion activities, because most of the panels and things, people can't really interact and and mash up. But I tell people about the great secret of mountain biking in your town and one of the nicest museums I've ever been to. Uh, What's the name of the place you guys held the festivities? Uh, Crystal Bridges. It's an amazing spot. Okay. Well, you guys are... Wonderful host, gracious host. So, if you do have it again, listeners will circle. So, we know where you're based. Mark, tell us where do we find you today? Uh, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. And a relatively recent acquisition by AcreTrader. When did you join the crew?
2: It was December, mid December of 2022. Right? 2021. 2021. Right? Yeah. It's like, I'm not any longer than that, Mark. <laughs> So let's start with the catch up.
0: For those watching this on YouTube, you can see my farm in the background. Uh, we talk a lot about farming in general. We're going to talk about a topic today that I don't think we've covered in nearly 500 episodes, which is a bit strange, but we'll get into it in a little bit. But Carter, walk us through Like you guys have been a booming success. But t- talk to us about what the last couple years, give us an update since last time you've been on and listeners, we'll put a show note link for the background episode to listen to as a prequel to this. But what's going on in y'all's world?
1: We've been busy, that is for sure. So the the brief updates to today for Acre Trader. we continue to be committed to our core cause, which is connecting investors with land, right? And doing so in a, in a very simple fashion on, a, on an easy-to-use website at acretrader.com. So that, that is what we focus our our daily efforts on, primarily being on the supply side of that equation. We'll get into that today with timberland, but we spend most of our time and efforts as a business on finding more farmland and timberland throughout the U.S. As, as well as in Australia. And so, continue to be really excited about that. We've also grown quite a bit since last on the show with you. I think at that time, we were probably 20 or 25 employees, and today we're about 125. So, it's been, been a wild couple of years. We raised a Series B, so we raised $60 million for the business itself as well uh, to continue investing heavily in our teams and our growth. So, a lot of exciting stuff going on I'm very excited to dig in with you today around farmland and specifically around timberland.
0: So listeners, full disclosure, I tried to harass Carter and letting me on the cap table and I'm, I'm putting him in a headlock until he, he lets me do it. But I am an owner of farmland on Acre Trader. and we can talk about that a little bit later. But so tell me, so like give me a broad overview. You guys, how many farms y'all got under your umbrella now or how many acres or how do you look at it? What's the total sort of portfolio?
1: I should know the number offhand, I don't, but it's it's well over 40,000 acres at this point. And that's in about 18 states here in the US and other three states in Australia.
0: So what's the Australia decision? That seems like a hard sort of jump to make. Oz is quite a ways from here. How'd you guys decide on that?
1: It's not physically close, but it is close in another, a number of other ways in that uh, there, there are generally some really great growing climates, some great soils. We call it access to water, so they have actually formalized water markets there. So you, even if it's expensive, you understand what you're getting and you can underwrite it, which is really great.
0: Yeah, I think if we were to do a word cloud on the first time you and I spoke, the word water is probably like the number. It's like farm, but like water is a really important one. Do we have a record for the individual with the most farms yet? Because I, I when I was at your conference and there was a, a Meb Faber Show listener and he was like, Meb, I think I own like 20 farms or something at this point, which is I was like, dude, you're getting into Bill Gates territory. Anybody, do you have any ballpark idea on who's got the most... Of y'all's portfolio farms, I
1: do. It's in the, the 30s, if not 40s, at this point. And and again, that's that's fractions, right? So you can do that at at ten or twenty thousand dollars per investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas buying thirty or forty actual farms, you're right; you'd have to be uh, on the level of of a Bill Gates type investor to just have the capital to do that.
0: Did I imagine this, or did I see you guys are doing vineyard offerings?
1: Uh, we have done one vineyard offering and hope to have more here in the very near future
0: you know, I got to hold your foot to the fire. What's of all the crops? I mean, there's got to be what I don't know, like two dozen. I mean, I'm trying to think of how many. I mean, obviously, some rotate. So, you know, it may be corn, it may be wheat. But in general, how many actual crops do you think are under the the acre t- acre trader domain?
1: It's definitely dozens, right? And I, I, I wish I knew the exact figure, but you'll also have a lot of crop rotation where maybe you'll grow potatoes one year and, and uh, you know something something different the next year. You want to rotate between crops. So we're, we're still very heavy corn and soybeans. That's something like sixty percent of U.S. farmland is in those two crops, and so we we view those as very important as an important part of any potential farmland portfolio as having this sort of, sort of core. Stuff there. And then you know, I think a lot of people get pretty excited about what they see on their kitchen table. And that's usually a smaller percentage. And uh, now again, I'm excited also to have uh, Timberland play a part in that as well, as we see lots of institutional investors and interest there. And it's a little bit different in how it, and we'll talk about it here in a bit with Mark, I'm sure. But it's a little bit different uh, in how it acts and walks, but, but nonetheless, a, a very interesting investment in of its own right.
0: We'll promise to let Mark talk in a minute, but um, you know the the last couple of years, obviously COVID, but the macro environment. You know, there's been a very lifetime sort of macro event that's occurred in the, in the last year or two that I imagine is a positive for y'all's world in general. But one of the big things is that for the better part of my lifetime, 45, there's been one major regime, which is interest rates declining, and now an in inflation declining in lockstep. We seem to be in a very different environment the last two years. How has that impacted you guys as far as returns, as far as acquisitions, as far as interest in the platform? I imagine it's been a net positive.
1: I believe that's the case. As a broad statement, rates and inflation tend to uh, tend to chase each other around. And so we have seen outsized inflation over the last year. And historically, farmland has correlated very positively with inflation. It's actually the only real economic indicator like CPI and PPI being those specific ones or asset class that we can really find any primary correlation to is inflation. Again, it's not like perfect lockstep, but as a general statement, inflationary pressures uh, so so higher inflation tends to be a positive for the underlying land and we have seen some of that uh, more so in po- certain pockets than other but it, it makes sense right we we grow food fuel fiber structures for buildings right all the things that tend to be like actual components of inflation itself as, it, as it's calculated and i think what's interesting is when we look at it over the next 10 years the setup is pretty fascinating right this isn't uh inflation is usually not what do they call it? Transitory, right? There's that that fun word that the Fed used there for a minute and they realized that that's probably not the case. This tends to be over, over larger cycles. And so it'll be intriguing to see how this plays out the next five and 10 years.
0: Yeah. I went to the store yesterday and I don't know if Amazon is like intentionally trying to destroy Whole Foods, but man, the experience is totally degraded, but not my point. There's plenty of great grocery stores around here, but I'm trying to make tonight the famous Zuni roast chicken, San Francisco restaurant, you know, it's been doing this for 40 years, want to try to make it. Part of the recipe calls for pine nuts and, you know, in basil or whatnot ever. And I I tried to go buy some pine nuts for the recipe last night and it was $17. And I said, look, I, you know, I don't know what this is going to add to the recipe, but it can't add $17 worth of enjoyment. So I I told my wife to go steal some from my mother in law. I said, can you just get a couple of tablespoons? Just don't tell her. Just just grab some. So inflation, you know, it's definitely picking up in places, some expected, some unexpected, but it definitely feels very, very real. Okay. Mark, you're allowed out of the penalty box. Are you allowed to talk now? Sorry, we could, I feel like Carter and I could just do two hours worth of this. But talk to us. How'd you hook up with this crazy crew? Did you know these guys for a while? What was the impetus to join a uh, acre trader?
2: It was Really, the fundamental change that had been occurring in the Timberland investing space, the institutional market had changed and a lot of the institutions were bringing the acquisition and the management of Timberland in-house. they gained experience over the last 20 or 30 years and it was just becoming very competitive from the standpoint of fees and just the expertise that was required. So Acre Trader just presented a really interesting opportunity To bring an asset class that had historically only been available to the institutions, pension funds, endowments, or the ultra-high net worth investor, so somebody with $100 million or more. And by getting back to the fundamentals of going out and looking for land, acquiring land, managing land, but for a completely new investor base, it was really fascinating and exciting. You know, when we think of
0: Timberland, I was thinking of my very first book, Ivy Portfolio, I was also joking with someone this weekend who I was getting ready to have their first child. I said, you know how many books I wrote before I had a, my child? I said it was five, edited two more. You know how many have written since? Zero. <laughs> He's almost six now. But my first book talked about Timberland a lot. And the interesting part is it was talking about the endowments. And so the endowments, you know, were often early into some innovative ideas that most people wouldn't consider to be pretty traditional, partially because they were hard to access for similar mentions as farmland timberland definitely overlaps on a number of these and i said there's a few public choices but like farmland they're not particularly exactly what you're looking for and we can dive in that to that little bit but give us a little background are, are you new to the timber world you've been doing this for a while Did i see you cross paths with some of our former guests we've had a lot of alums at gmo and, and a few other places
2: give us a little uh mark history originally from new zealand started out in primary manufacturing in New Zealand and pulp and paper. So New Zealand's a large agricultural economy. We have a large forestry base, uh, agricultural sheep everywhere. And then came to the US in 2000 to work for a startup in the commoditizing marketplace arena that was around in that era. And then came to GMO and worked with Jeremy Grant for eight years in his timber group. And that was really where I really got into the asset class from a quant and a management aspect so jeremy grantham brings that quantitative expertise to analyzing data and trends and mean reversion and then the physical visiting to the property how to put together a management plan what are we actually looking at is the best of both worlds we that field experience and then that really crunching number by program that jeremy and his firm is renowned for
0: I was laughing because Jeremy, we've had on the show a few times, but there used to be like the GMO asset class projections and it's like quant, it's like, you know, various points of the cycle, but today it's, you know, kind of not great for everything, but there was always like timber on the right. It was like timber was the one, one that was hanging out. And now we got emerging markets and value, I think are really the standout, but I used to always laugh because there'll always be timber uh, as the less volatile choice. Okay. So been at this for a while. You've been doing it globally.
2: Give us, let's do the like uh, 300 foot overview. Well, basically, in a timber investment, you're buying a bio- biological engine. You're buying a commodity, a crop that is historically been grown in these regions in the US. And we're just managing it for a range of outcomes, whether that be a certain type of product that we're wanting to target, whether it be saw timber for housing construction or pulp and paper manufacturing. But we're also just managing the biology and just trying to assist nature. We're not really looking to change nature in any way, but we're we're thinning trees, we're replanting, we are managing the forest, or working to keep out invasive species, managing the natural environment. So at the end of the day, that's really what we are doing for the investor and we're getting a financial return that's very stable, uncorrelated, and it's sort of the investment that you look at. You put it in the bottom drawer and you pull back out again in 10 years' time and it's, okay, I have my number.
0: And so how does it work? So like from someone who's imagining, thinking about this, and they buy some timberland in Arkansas or wherever and Georgia, is it traditionally where there's one you know plot of land or one farm you guys are buying where... Hey, you get one cash flow every I don't know 10, 20, 30 years and that's it or like how how or do you like try to call part of the forest every year so it's like a a consistent cash flow how does that work out?
2: Every piece of property that we look at is slightly different. So we could get 1000 acres with 10 age classes or we could get 1000 acres with one age class. So we we need to really understand what we're looking to bring to the platform and to the investor. So we like to a property that has preferably a mix of different pine age classes. So then we're laddering our portfolio like we do a bond portfolio. So we've got some 3-year, we've got some 10-year, we've got some 15-year and some 25-year. And there's different acreage size of those. And then there's some hardwoods in there as well, which are a different market. So our job is to really understand what we're buying, why we are wanting to buy that particular piece of property, in terms of how we're going to manage it, and then putting together a a physical management plan based on our going out and looking at the property. It's very important to go out and look at the property. And then we, to your point, we will thin a certain standard trees in year two. We will final harvest a year, some trees in year six. And then we sit down and try to figure out the management of this to really maximize the return to the investor without in the investment in any way and having something that's better if we decide to sell it in the future than when we acquire it. And then uh, we get into the whole area of optionality. Yeah. You know, I'm just thinking in terms of
0: like my Acre Trader farm, I get like a cash flow each year. It's great. And I'm thinking in terms of like the like, traditional row crops you're getting it every year, which are of course going to be different than, you know, almond grove or other types of crops? What's the broad expectations on how this fits in, return, vol, all those sort of characteristics?
2: I think you should think about timber as sort of fitting in between stocks and bonds, but with a lot lower volatility, and that's primarily because of that biological growth. And uh, there's a lot of academic research that that has looked at forests from the standpoint of the financial return and where that return's been generated from. And around about sixty to sixty-five percent of the re- return over a cycle of trees is coming from the biological biological growth. So, falls in between stocks and bonds, much lower volatility, non-correlated, but correlated with inflation.
0: So, as we think about this, you know, I think a lot of listeners are probably recall of all the commodities, nothing went more haywire than than lumber. I feel like over the last few years and this is from someone who just knows very little about the Timberland space, what's the end product demand? Is it housing? Is it global economy related as far as paper, or other products? Like where are all these trees going?
2: It really depends on where you are in the market in the US. So there's sort of five distinct regions, but at the moment we're focusing on the US South, which is primarily housing driven with pulp and paper and wood chips exported to Europe. Now, if you go out into the Pacific Northwest, again it's housing, but also we have the Asia market that we sell into. Then if you go into the Northeast, you've got your hardwoods and they're globally traded. The high value hardwoods are sent all around the world and into the US market, but in terms of furniture or industrial products, rail ties, pellets, etc. So it's really difficult to Simplify down, timber is going into one area because depending on the type of forest you're buying, the age of the forest you're buying, there's all the different markets. So the younger trees that we take from thinning, wood will go into wood chips and make pulp and paper. The second thinning, with larger diameter log, will go into 2 by 4s Then the larger goes into the structural lumber, the 2 by 10s 2 by 8s and all different markets, in all different cycles. So, our job as a investment manager is to identify the forest that makes sense, but also understand where that forest fits into the current landscape in terms of the markets that we're going to be selling that wood into. And hey, Mark, can can you speak to on, on that topic as well? Just speak to a little bit around the
1: optionality. Yes, right, You mentioned earlier an example case of you know years two and six as as years where you you may go harvest some, but speak a little bit to uh, one the broader lumber markets and and to how a a deft or or you know even basic uh, timber manager can can take advantage and or wait through those markets
2: so we have the ability when we own a, a forest to move our harvesting plans around depending on where we see product prices in that particular region so wood usually doesn't travel from the forest more than 75 to 90 miles from where we're harvesting it so if we are in a situation of slightly lower prices than we had forecasted, we can defer the harvesting and what we call store the value on the stump. So you're still getting into biological return. So, uh, for example, think of the tree at the beginning of the year as being worth 100 shares. And at the end of the year with, with rain and sunlight, we've got 108 shares. We haven't done anything from a management so We just let the tree do what a tree does. What's a
0: traditional pine as far as like to maturity? Is it 10,
2: 20, 30? It's a 30-year standard rotation with some harvesting events occurring within that 30 years. So we might do something in year 15, a thinning operation where we remove 20 to 30% of the stems or the trunks, and then another thinning operation in year 22 where we remove another 20 or 30% of the stems and we'll go out and remove what we call the sick, lame, and lazy, take the trees that are not performing well and leave the ones that are doing really well to grow even faster and bigger. But to Carter's point, we have that ability to say, let's do that in our... We had planned to do something in year 15. Markets have changed. Let's do it in year 14. Or we want to delay it till year 16. We have that ability to move... The product around within the forest, depending on what we've seen in the market from the standpoint of pricing and without degrading the return to the investor in a sense, because the tree is going to be growing in that time frame.
0: Carter, are you guys still doing um, a similar investment life expectancy for the Timlin or is it a different match on a time frame?
1: It's usually something similar. Our, our target time frames for for farmland are usually five to ten years, sometimes ten to fifteen. Timberland tends to sit in those same in those same general buckets. And I think it's important to note that rarely are you buying a patch of ground with no timber on it. Right. There there's often there usually is timber and, and often several uh, different cohorts of maturity within that. So so Mark and his team are out looking every day uh, across right, right now what is the southern us but soon to be uh, other, other regions as well for for timberland that may fit that maturity profile for, for us where there's again m- multiple stands or or maturities within it
0: i know you guys have had some timberland offerings go through the platform do you guys have any current can you even talk about those or if not can you give us just an overview of a of a property and kind of the the summary of what it looks like
1: yeah i'll i'll give an overview of the the uh, platform in general, we do one to two offerings per week, and uh, that that tends to be made up of U.S. row crops, U.S. permanent crops, Australia, uh, non timberland as well. And so with, within that uh, monthly cadence, we usually do a timber product per month. Is that a rough uh, way to answer that, Mark? And maybe you can talk a little bit about what's out there today. We don't, uh, you know, we don't want to pitch individual offerings or anything because it may I be there by the time the the show is over. But as a general statement. Talk about what's on the site today and how that's representative of what we look at, Mark.
2: What we like to put up on the site in terms of an offering is a property that currently we're focusing on the U.S. South, so across 11 states. We are targeting loblolly pine. It's the native species to this region. Uh, it's got a long history of being managed and grown for industrial wood use. We like to buy properties... Ranging between sort of 500 to 3,000 acres in size currently, that have a range of age classes, and that gets back to the ability for us to manage those age classes and associated cash flows to the best of our ability. So, we like the Southern uh, Yellow Pine markets. It's the biggest market globally for industrial wood production. It's very deep, so there's a lot of uh, options to sell your wood. But there's also a lot of options for groups out there to come and harvest that timber for us. And we just like the, the long-term projections of where we see this asset class in the South.
1: Mark touched on a, a fun theme there that we probably don't highlight enough as a business, which is that 500 acre to a few thousand acres within timberland, similar with farmland where it's a higher value per acre. We look at you know 100 to 1,000, maybe 1,500 acre tracks. We, we would call that the lower middle markets. And why that's important is because there are fewer, if if any, in the case of some of the Timberland acquisitions we've done. There's certainly fewer institutions playing in those markets, and so you can actually find real opportunities where there's dislocations uh, around pricing and/or opportunities for alpha uh, when investing.
0: Yeah, talk to me a little bit about some of the risks. You know, I mean, I feel like uh, most people understand. Hey, you have a traditional crop like corn or wheat, and You know, weather is pretty impactful on what goes on with those crops. You get hail, they may be totally done. You get drought, you know, on and on. You get a drunk farmer, you know, uh, know, does something and burns down the field. What's the risk mainly with Timberland? Like they're so low growing. Is it disease? Like what's the main risk to this sort of yield and growth?
2: The biggest risk that we face as a team is not understanding what we're buying and overpaying. But from once we acquire something, we face biological risks, pathogens, we have storm issues, weather becomes a big part of it. We do a lot of work understanding how forest health is when we're looking at that property. We understand what's trying to go on within that state with regards to pests moving around within that state. A lot of the pests that do attack forests are natural and they do go through cycles. So there'll be an outbreak of a beetle or an outbreak of a Willie Alfred moth or something on those lines that will impact your forest. But if you maintain a healthy forest, that's the best defense against a lot of the natural risks. Fire is something that is a lot of people's minds. Uh, we combat that by managing the understory of the property, but also having good access and being able to get equipment in if necessary. Fires in the south are primarily lightning, whereas out in, the say, California, it might be uh, campfires or electrical issues. Again, it comes down to that fire. We use fire on our properties to manage them. So just a natural occurrence that happens with uh, these forests, and they're designed to withstand it. But it's something that you need to do on a regular basis. Otherwise, when you do have a fire on an unregulated forest, that's where you get the catastrophic fires that you see out in California with the treetops burning and the flames jumping, the fire breaks, and uh, those types of issues. So we like to build diversification in our properties through the age classes. That's another area that we can uh, use to manage the risk if we have a property that's all one-year-old trees and the storm comes through, those one-year-old trees may get tipped over, but there's a high probability that they'll rewrite themselves and, on their own and keep growing. But I assume for the major
0: catastrophe, whether it's fire or you know infestation or whatever, y'all have insurance on those, or the farmers have insurance on the property? Is, is that like, because like, I feel like the insurance... In farming in general is one of the most well-developed risk mitigations for farmland in the U.S. in general. I think it's
1: less so within timber than it is in farmland. Uh, Sorry, Marcus, speaking to the the farmland side because we've dealt lots of insurance on that side, but the the occurrences are also far less as well, right? Whereas a, a weather event can wipe out a crop, right? That is rarely the case with trees, and, and forests, right? And, and in our case, you could do things to mitigate. As an example, like don't buy something 10 miles from the coast, uh, right? From the, the Gulf of Mexico, because you you are at risk of a hurricane. But 100 miles inland, that's not, or, you know, in the state of Arkansas, we don't have a whole lot of hurricanes up here relative to southern Louisiana. And, and likewise, to make sure to touch on a point Mark stated there, we often, Will actively uh, burn as, within the the timber that's managed through our on our platform, and that, that is a, a very positive environmental benefit as, as well as risk mitigant uh, to manage the undergrowth within these forests. Uh, unlike like and that's probably why you don't hear of you know hundred thousand or million acre fires happening in Alabama and Arkansas and Georgia all the time, whereas you do hear about that in some of the more more or less managed places around California, as an example.
0: I miss the old southern uh, thunderstorms. We don't get those too much out here. Although, my God, the amount of snow we've been getting, we got stuck in Mammoth. I don't even know. snow like 10 feet or something. One of the things I was thinking about is, uh, and we'll get into portfolios and kind of where it fits in, in a little bit. But um, I was thinking a little bit about, I love alternative sources of yield. So yeah, this to me is like the most straightforward asset class. Like if you don't get it, like, you know, it's trees, that's the yield. You get growth on, on capital gains. Do you guys ever come up with the alternative sources of yield? I mean, like, do you, like, rent out the land for paintball tournaments? Uh, people have some meth distilleries. I don't know. Is it is meth not even a distillery? Meth lab, I guess. <laughs> is there anything else you can do with these giant pieces of land? Or if, like, you know, St. Joe's comes along and says, hey, we want to develop this into some houses, besides the very straight-laced yield of the wood, what else makes an impact?
2: So on a piece of timberland, we will primarily have a hunting lease, in the south. So that gives the, a particular group the right to come along and use that property for hunting purposes. And that's not a significant part of the return, but it's a return that provides us benefits, not necessarily monetary, because we have another set of eyes on the property and walking and traversing that property that will see things that we may not necessarily see all the time. So a beaver dam, for example, or a culvert has been washed out, or your neighbor is doing something, you should just be aware of it. So the hunting lease provides financial and non-financial benefits to us. We sometimes have pine straw leases. I use a lot of pine straw in the south for landscaping. In the northeast, on if we would own property up there, we could look at uh, maple syrup, taps, and that can be a pretty lucrative operation. We also We'll have maybe out in the Pacific Northwest uh, groups coming along and using the properties for outdoor activities, so like mountain biking, uh, northeastern snow snowmobiling trails. But again, the primary return, the primary income side, is the harvesting and the managing of the
0: timber. I think you guys need to talk that up for the investors on your platform. Say, look, all well and good, you can get this lumber farm, but hey, it's like frequent flyer miles. It's like, we'll we'll send you a. Uh, a six pack of maple syrup, or you can come hunt once a year. I, uh, I imagine there'd be a non-trivial amount of people interested in some of the ancillary benefits of being a shareholder, other than just to come out and you know stare at the trees. So, an idea for you guys.
1: Mark did have a. They, their team had a farm on the website a several months back that was growing hardwoods, going into whiskey barrel making, and I, I was. Uh, Personally, just emotionally excited. That's not a reason to invest because you emotionally like something, right? But uh, that was certainly certainly fun to see. And yes, we get we get pinged uh, pretty much every single day of the week by folks asking to hunt.
0: You guys, you guys, know, this is like, a, you got to get a, a handful of uh, interns on this for the summer say, all right, you're going to build a marketplace. We're going to be able to have all the products from our various farms. I remember looking at a software company called Barn to Door that does some of this, but say, hey, you can buy the, hazelnuts from here, blueberries from here. And by the way, if you want to do hunting on this, that, and the other, that's probably more of a, under the category of like swag, it's not going to dictate any future outcome for you guys as far as earnings, but maybe an interesting idea. Anyway, you know, there's, there's a topic that I think is interesting and I don't know that much about it, but I'd love to hear you guys talk about it too. And 2023, there was a conversation I listened to maybe about a decade ago and it was, I feel like a former Sierra club, CEO or president, whatever they call it, was then working in the timber industry and, you know, kind of people were lighting their hairs on fire. I don't even remember who this may have been, but he was talking and he did a long discussion. He says, you know, the the timber industry is actually fairly regenerative and it is also a big carbon sink where all the carbon that gets stored in the trees is not getting burned. It's actually like a coal or something. It's actually getting stored. And I never thought about it that way. And it kind of flipped the switch in my head. Is carbon, you know, credits, sequestration, is any of that something that is, A, currently on the menu of potential yield or benefits or something else? Or is it something in the future you guys think about? And just talk to us in general, because I know very little on this on this topic.
1: I think Mark, Mark can speak to that one certainly more, probably break into two, right? One is the hard benefits of, of selling carbon capture and, and the potential promise of that, uh, not necessarily an underwritten one, but but one we're intrigued by, the other being the actual environmental benefits of, of the timber industry. So Mark, that, that's probably a fun topic for you to break apart.
2: We follow, we talk to a lot of people about the carbon market, uh, carbon credits. It's not something that we're currently factoring into our analysis, but it's something that we want to be aware of. And when the market evolves Within the US, so there's a single US market and we have some sort of rules and regulations about what is classified as uh, a credit and how that credit is to be transferred. Will we, will be ready? But, uh, at the moment, it's, it's been around for over 20 years. I remember GMO talking about it in 2001 and we still haven't really got to that point where it's clearly defined, I think, on the standpoint of it being a, A commodity that we from a financial standpoint can say okay we're going to defer harvesting but we're going to get this payment instead for a storage of carbon out on the property so it's something that we do follow we do track we do talk to a lot of people but it's something that is still in its infancy i think in the us now australia new zealand are a different story yeah when are we going to get some new zealand properties on the platform New Zealand. So back to Carter's point about farming in Australia, New Zealand and Australia both have the similar uh, situations, very good title, very good flow of capital in and out of the country, stable governments, very defined land tenure and legal representation. And the pension funds endowments and the ultra with investors have been in New Zealand for over 30 years already. The Canadian pension funds are down there. They own. It's very hard to go down there and find something that somebody doesn't know anything about from a timberland or farming perspective. The market is very well covered, researched. I would love to buy something in New Zealand and Australia for our investor base, but so is everyone else in the U.S. and Canada and Europe.
1: The rudest thing about this crew of people I work with, Meb, is uh, they've gone on diligence trips and not taken me with them. I just find that incredibly unfair.
0: Australia, I joked with my friends there. Last time I was there, I said Melbourne feels like a California city to me, like San Francisco. And I said Byron Bay feels like a little town I live in, in Manhattan Beach. It was very similar. I haven't been to New Zealand forever. I have a niece who's in vet school there. I need to go visit. So maybe we'll write it off by visiting a few uh, Timberland farms. Of the global timber opportunity, or you can even speak to it just in the U.S., does there tend to be any better currently or historically speaking, value opportunities? I mean, the way I think about it, I'm like, hey, look, I want to go buy some wheat land, farmland growing corn or something. You know, some of these plots in Iowa, I think I just saw a record per acre just cross the tape recently. That's going to be different from my dry ass piece of land in, in Kansas that's not irrigated. Are there opportunities within the US? I know you guys focus mostly on the south, but give us kind of a geographical overview of what that looks like today. So we
2: have the South, so East Texas across to Florida to uh, North Carolina. Then we have the Appalachians, which is your natural hardwoods. So the natural high value hardwoods. Then you get up into the Northeast. So that would be your third market. So New York, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, New York State, mixed softwood, hardwood, natural forests again. Then we've got the lake states. So, upper peninsula of Michigan. And then you get out into the Pacific Northwest, so Washington and Oregon. And from a Timber's perspective, I like my personal preference is to focus on the wet side. So, where there's a significant amount of rainfall, they grow big Douglas fir, and uh, you have an export market as well as a domestic market. So we sort of have five sort of markets within the US. Then if you decide if you want to go offshore, New Zealand, Australia are very comparable to the US in terms of risk return, but you're playing in some sense a currency. Both currencies are freely floating, stable government, stable reserve bank policy. So you do have the currency that you have to factor in by going down to those markets. And then you start to move into your more risk Adjusted, but like we, you're going to get a higher return, but you're going to get higher risks. So Central America, South America, lower East Africa, and then you're getting into Eastern Europe, sort of is, is another market that uh, institutional investors are focused on. But those come with trade offs. You've got potentially higher returns, but you've got much more volatility in your product. You've got, in the case of Central or South America, you've got. Land tenure issues like, do you really own the land? Uh, How do you define that ownership? Uh, What's the government structure like? The stability. There are situations where groups have gone into these markets and the rules have changed. Can't get the capital out, can't get the capital in, or the forest is great, but there's nowhere to process the wood or export the wood. There's no infrastructure. So it's just not thinking about the individual property. It's about the entire supply chain. Like... You can have a great property, but if you can't harvest the wood or sell the wood, it's not really worth anything more than just a uh, land with beautiful trees on it from a purely financial perspective.
0: Is, has there been any impact on uh, is, is climate change a thing that even enters this equation at all, or is it not so much?
2: It enters the equation, especially when I'm thinking about a 30-year investment or in some cases, 50 years or 100 years in the case of the Northeast. So we need to be aware of it. We look at uh, where we're buying a property in regards to its potential relationship to the coast. Historically, what's gone on in that particular region, like forest land is not necessarily planted on prime rock land. It's planted on very marginal land. So the tree itself is very robust in the sense it can live through climate issues, so a significant amount of rain or a significant amount of drought, but it is something that I need to be aware of because I'm buying a, it's, um, I, I am buying a long-term asset. I am buying something that's 30, 50, or 100-year rotation in some cases.
0: As people think about diligencing this, you know, it seems pretty simple to me, but what other things for the listeners who are like, okay, I'm ready, I'm going to buy some Timberland, guys, and they're reviewing some of the, the offerings you guys do. And I know a lot of this, the comfort I have is that your team is looking through it. So I feel a, a measure of comfort by shifting all of the responsibility to you guys. But in general, if I'm reviewing a Timberland investment, anything I should be looking for in particular or think about as, I, as I'm as i checking it out? Visit the property. It's the single biggest thing I tell. And I'm going to let you guys do that. So I'm not going to visit, but let's say I'm reviewing <laughs> one of y'all's. When you visit the property, like what's the main disqualifier? So there's obviously price. So let's ignore price. Yep. And that sort of you're like, oh no, it's too expensive. But like let's say you visit and you're like, oh hell no. What's the
2: usual top one or two disqualifiers? If the data that the seller has presented us does not match with what we're seeing in the in the property, or it's not been managed. So it's very heavily overgrown, it hasn't been thinned, it has poor access. So we might be able to drive off a main road to it, but can we get out onto the property? And is there issues that are apparent through through the tree? The tree will quickly tell you if it's been managed appropriately. You can tell if it's just overcrowded, like if you can't walk into the forest. That's an ind- indication that there's something not being handled right in the past. Let's talk about technology
0: real quick. You know, farming to me. I think Carter and I talked about this last time, but it it seems to be accelerating. I mean, some of these tractors are more advanced, I feel like, than than some satellites and rockets. You look I remember riding around even when I was a kid, and I was like, dude, the house doesn't even have air conditioning. I'm like, this has not only air conditioning, but it has like, you know, TVs and monitors and everything else. You got music. Who knows now? Like I, I assume like at this point almost no one is gonna be actually driving the tractors or drones or whatever it is in a few years so there's this huge efficiency technology impact on timberland i don't know that it my guess would the impact but maybe on like the genetic basis of the seeds we're all to have trees grow faster capture more carbon or something i don't know is there anything that like you think is is really on the horizon as far as technology that has an impact on on this space
2: well, from a, a management standpoint, we record all the activities that we're doing on the property. So when we're replanting, we know how many trees per acre we replanted, the spacing, the, the soil quality. Uh, and we track all that information. We, we also, from a harvesting standpoint, some of the equipment that is out there is able to take instruction from a mill so the mill has an order book that they're cutting 8-foot or 16-foot or 12-foot logs this week and turn it in into lumber. They will relay that to the field and the machine operator will harvest the tree and then cut it to the required lengths in the field without having necessarily been processed once it gets to the mill. The mill is already at the right length. So in GPS, we use a lot of GPS uh For boundary and stand delineation, we use a lot of drones for forest health and just being able to cover 500 acres of newly planted seedlings really quickly. A drone can get up there and at 500 feet, we can see, okay, there's there's an area here that's of concern. We need to physically walk out to this particular area and see what's going on. There's
0: a drone company I invested in called Drone Seed, but I think that's targeting like reforestation, not actually planting things like y'all, but they've been very successful. Carter, are you going to say something?
1: Oh, yeah. I was going to plug some technology we've built as well. Uh, So we have a a geospatial tool called Acres. We actually have a a part of this public... And
0: to interrupt Carter, by the way, I was on this this morning and I spent like an hour and a half... For no reason, just out of curiosity, playing around, because there's a, there's a free part of this, listeners. And I found the Mevin T. Faber plot, and I dug in. I looked at my brothers and my neighbors and everyone else. This thing is awesome. Okay, keep going. What's the domain? Uh, it's
1: fantastic. Oh, I love that. Uh, so yeah, Acres is the name of this tool we built initially for ourselves. But it's
0: acres.co, or what's the domain?
1: That's correct. It'll be acres.com uh, within the coming weeks.
0: So oh, ready. man. Who, who's who's, the who's squatting on that?
1: <laughs> oh, I was the
0: only one to talk about it to be here.
1: That's a whole other podcast some other day.
0: Oh, that five-letter domain, man. Good thing you got that venture funding. I, those those things don't come cheap. All right. Keep going. Yeah,
1: The time was, was even more expensive than the dollars we invested to make it happen. But yeah, so we'll be over at acres.com very soon it's at acres.co today. And that tool we built initially for ourselves uh, today has about 40 software engineers and data scientists working on it full time. And for Mark and his team, where that's incredibly effective is doing the initial diligence very quickly, right? So finding the plot of land, understanding the bones of that land. So what are the soils like? What's the topography like? And then then being able to dig in pretty immediately and see historical satellite imagery to really understand uh, problem areas, especially, right? That's the the deal that's the idea of any deal is you want to find the no as fast as possible so you can spend your time working on the yeses so the mark and team are not not going out to the farms that we could have discovered through our software was a no it also includes really cool data like where all the mills are so we're able to and their capacity as well so we're able to target acquisition areas and be able to understand pretty immediately hey there is a very real market for the product coming off of this tract of timberland versus ah that market's a little more dicey with only one buyer that's forty miles away. So we're really excited to apply technology of our own within the underwriting process and, and the oversight management process as we go go through the life cycle of these farms.
0: Yeah, listeners, it's very cool. There's a free tier, a thirty dollar tier. I imagine you should charge a lot more for enterprise customers, tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars, but it's fun to play around with and, and it's kind of shocking how detailed it's like a, it's like a zillow i mean it's it's a, you guys got any competitors signing in yet or what
1: you know there are some folks that have little point solutions in what we do but in terms of you know, where we're really focused is the quality of the data i imagine most people that are on the show have built a financial model in their lives and garbage in garbage out right most of the data that exists in our world is low quality so i'll give you a a quick example inside of our enterprise tool we have comparable sales this sounds ridiculous, but when you buy a house, you've got the MLS, you've got Zillow, you know what things are selling for. Commercial real estate, there's uh, huge, huge data sets out there. For what we do in the world of land, there, there's no really great organized set of data out there. So we, we're we in 3,000 county courthouses. We do tons of data science around that. Then we literally have a team of folks going and manually entering com- comparable sales that we can find online to help our teams, to help Mark and his team as an example, Immediately, again, I know how ridiculous this sounds, and forgive me, but knowing your comp sales in the area actually helps you to buy, right? Like, no kidding. Uh, and that has, just historic, has historically been uh, a very material challenge for folks buying and selling land. Is just that lack of information.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it, yeah. Uh, it's, very, it's still shockingly, despite all the institutional money has still been like a neighborly like going down to the local co-op and ask people or like the local broker, like that's how you get the information. It's really hard to find information online. So you guys, it's pretty cool. Let's talk a little bit about portfolios. You know, we've long been a big outlier here on talking about asset allocation portfolios. We just we just rolled off one of the worst years ever for stocks and bonds. So congrats to all the people listening that had you know, real asset exposure that probably really helped last year and, and not all real asset exposure. And it not always will, but it certainly helps in a time of inflation or rising inflation, thinking about the 70s, the 40s, et cetera. Talk to us a little bit of how this fits in. You know, there's not a lot of choices. I mean, I remember in my first book talking about a couple, quote, Timberland ETFs, but they're not really Timberland. So maybe it's like private fund choices. What does it look like versus the various publicly traded ones? Because those got smashed last year. I think the ETFs were down 20%. But again, I think they're owning paper manufacturers, processing mills, all the sort of various giant public conglomerates. Anyway, floors, floors, y'alls. What does this kind of fit in and look like on the characteristics?
1: So I think both across farmland and timberland, we like the land parts. Right. And and you're exactly right. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with some of those public vehicles out there, but they, they tend to be also like very large operating entities and, and own lots of uh, production capacity, as an example, in one of the cases there. Uh, the other component is, is that's like why we like private ownership is because REITs and or any you know, ETFs, public tickers in general, one tend to be correlated and, and two tend to be more volatile. And that, Whereas Farmland and Timberland have shown something like half, like literally half of the volatility, roughly speaking, of the volatility of the S&P. It's a pretty fascinating asset classes that we work within. And then in terms of how people think about it fitting in their portfolio, there's lots of third-party research out there that, that we usually point to, whether that's from Nuveen or Prudential, you know, talking about like $100 billion, trillion-dollar type asset managers. that go through and look at the underlying data and sometimes they'll show 2 to 5% 5 to 10% type of allocations you know we're not in the the business of recommending people allocations to their portfolio or mixed percentages and things like that what we are in the business of is making it available to people uh, so that they can have direct access really good fundamental understanding of what they're investing in what we're hoping to do is compound capital over long periods of time and do so in a in a very simple and effective manner
0: you know look personally one of the hardest we need to update our old asset allocation book. It's a summer sabbatical project I've claimed for the last four years in a row. But this summer, 2023, the thing about thinking about the asset allocation portfolio is that the most balance always include real assets to some degree. And, and one of the most basic that we joke, it's 2000 years old, the Talmud portfolio, you know, thinking in terms of a third in each global equities, fixed income and real assets to me is nearly impossible portfolio to beat buy and hold for investors. And the cool thing is like thinking about the real assets part, what are the biggest missing pieces of the global market portfolio that is not accounted for in traditional public offerings? It's farmland, timber, single family housing. And there's getting to be more and more kudos to you guys and others, but those are traditionally missing. And if they're missing from the public market portfolio, it usually means there's a bit of a pricing mismatch too. You need like a little toggle on the Acres offering to say, hey, and I don't know if this is true yet, so it's just a joke, listeners. Like, just I, w- I want to mark all the Bill Gates properties because now he's going through a divorce. So these may be going through a fire sale. I don't think he has any liquidity problems. But anyway, so I think a third, you guys won't say this, but I think a third is a totally reasonable, real asset exposure for the buy and hold side. Do you guys know anybody doing that? I imagine there's some in y'all's orbit that, that do a pretty heavy Farm allocation,
1: there are, and uh, it, we especially see that with farmers, right, and, and folks in rural America, where they, they fundamentally understand the value, and we're we're really proud and excited about that. We'll see a farmer come on from Illinois and say, "Hey, look, I'm I farm here locally. I, I love land. I want to now I get access to land and in, in five other states or whatever to add to my portfolio."
0: What institutions do you guys think are? I, I know Yale, GMO, Harvard. I mean, are there any others? I mean, you mentioned a couple like Naveen Prudential. Who else is really like some of the big allocators or investors in sort of the, the timberland farmland world?
1: You mentioned some of the both LPs and GPs that are out there, right? And there are more and more pensions, universities, endowments that are going both through GP funds through through fund structures, and some that actually manage directly themselves as well. All Harvard owning, you know, very large swaths of land in, in various places. Then in, in in the world of GPs, there are a number of scaled solutions out there. There's quite a few funds out there at this point. They primarily are for those very large institutional investors. So we're not competing with them in terms of uh, the asset class or the dollars, the, the investment dollars, but they, they tend to focus on very large tracts of land and, and very large investors. And, and yeah, you, you named a few of the larger ones out there. Uh, Nuveen, TIA slash, slash Nuveen, the actual management vehicles called Westchester, uh, John Hancock, part of Manulife. Huge manager out there as well. Really great people, Prudential, you know, UBS. There's there's a big list of investors out there, and we know a lot of them. And and generally, like, really you know, fun part about this industry is it's fairly old school, and and it's pretty great people working inside of it. So.
0: Yeah, I met a lot of the the names you just mentioned at your conference. So it's always uh, always serendipitous to be in person again to see people and, and attach some of those names to faces one of the things you guys talked about in the past, so I don't want to step on any toes. So let me know where we stand with this, but I'm a cheap bastard. So one of the things that I like to think about is people that make foolish decisions. And in this case, it's not a foolish decision. It's just a personally foolish or sometimes just life intervenes. You know, sometimes people get sick, people die, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, they buy something they have to get rid of. And so look, if you're on Robinhood, you can sell it 10 times today already. But a lot of private investments, whether it's crypto investors buying a bunch of real estate in Puerto Rico, whether it's people who just got out over their skis when interest rates were zero, when they bought too many farms. Have you guys ever started to build out a marketplace yet where for secondary liquidity? Because you see where Meb's going with this. Cheap for Meb is like, look, can I be like the low bid? I'm going to give you just like a checking account. Say, any anyone that wants out for 20% down, Meb will take it? Is, is that something that's available? Like, or how do you guys think about any marketplace ideas? Because I've seen some others in the like, wine investing space that have started to build. Some of y'all doing? Thinking about? No?
1: Yes. It's something that we want to get it right from a regulatory standpoint. We tend to be very conservative in how we operate our business and want to make sure that we take that through the appropriate channels. For some context around that, we, we've actually built the technology for it. We will likely augment that as well, uh, pending approvals and, and a launch of that. But the idea around that is with, with any of the private assets or uh, private securities on our on our platform, there's a minimum holding period of one year uh, as a regulatory lockup period. After which today, UMEB, if you want to go sell to a friend or through another marketplace, we're certainly happy to help you. But larger uh, you know speaking wider to our to our investors that is our hope, and has been our hope for a long time that we would have a secondary marketplace to the extent that we've already invested very intensely in it. We've been going through uh, regulatory applications here over the last well, almost a year or so and and would like to make that part of it in the future. No promises that we'll get live. there's lots of issues with it. Here's the biggest one: Everyone is you. Right? So, you know, I'm being hyperbolic, but just about every day, somebody's like, hey, is there a secondary marketplace? When it goes live, I want to bid on there. And extremely rarely, like like literally like one or two times that I've ever even heard of, has somebody said, hey, I'd be interested in selling on there. And so yeah. there, there could be a buy, sell, mismatch on it as well, something we, we want to be certainly very, very cognizant of.
0: Well, usually that clusters too. So, right, it's like you go through an entire regime of 10 years of bull market in the US post-financial crisis, but then something like you get clusters of people and or in, in 2008 would be like an entire economy, but, but other times like 2000, 2003, or right now, you know, who's upside down? Well, it could be a lot of the tech or growth investors that are down 90% or something. And I doubt they diversified into farmland intelligently, but they might have. So who knows? Um, what else as we look out over the horizon, guys? You guys have had some pretty amazing success. What are you uh, noodling on? Um, what are you thinking about? Is it cannabis farms? Is it uh, vertical farming? Like what Like what else is on y'all's brain uh, these days Is it for acre trader or just the world in general?
1: Sure, I'll be specific too. One of them is resisting those kinds of things. Right, so vertical farms and cannabis farms I can be explicit about or tokens. It's the same with the buy and demand of, of the secondary marketplace. Like every day, somebody's asking to invest in those kinds of things, and we have seen lots and lots of cannabis, specifically like the hemp. Actually, when when that became a real big thing, whatever three years ago, four years ago, and look, like we as a business, and this is the the. I think you have to be cautious of in business, like the old Goldman Sachs motto or an unofficial motto of long-term greedy, right? Like as a business, as a marketplace ourselves, we we know that it would run up revenue and and uh, you know be interesting to put up cannabis farm. No is a strong statement, but like we're pretty sure it's tons of interest. But it's a total wild west, and we want to be really cautious of exposing people to those types of investments. Vertical farms are the same. There's some. Really killer applications of that, you know, growing uh, microgreens close to where you live.
0: Pine nuts, gotta grow some pine nuts. Pine
1: nuts, right, $8 an ounce, whatever, like. seventeen. Okay, that's, 70, that's, well, yeah,
0: I don't know what it was per ounce, but $17 for the smallest package I've ever yeah. seen in my life. Just...
1: That's intriguing, but but in, invert that for a moment. like, For vertical farming, the most expensive things usually they're dealing with are uh, that electricity for light and water. And us old school folks over here in horizontal farming- we get those things for free usually, so uh, so it's it's you know again like interesting niche applications. Uh, not some both both those cases are places where the market is not yet well enough developed for us to feel comfortable participating.
0: Yeah, I mean it reminds me. You mentioned you made it reminds me of Buffett like the old the analogy he gives, which consistently on a daily basis. I have to think about because I get attracted to every shiny object business idea out there. And I can kind of get rid of that with my startup investing. I, I scratch that itch. But, you know, he's whatever it was, right? The top 10 things you want to achieve are on your priority list. And he's like, move four to 10 to the right side of the paper and then just scratch them off and just focus on the top three. So the the no's are just as important as you mentioned, but keeps you out of trouble and distraction. Is a very real part of the the brain damage, but but what are you guys thinking about, or what are you considering that might be curious or interesting that you can kind of peel the, let us look uh, into the future with you guys.
1: I too have uh, that shiny penny problem, where it just there, and especially in our world of land and agriculture, there's just so much opportunity to improve and and do better and do better by your customers. For, for us, it's really about doubling down on on what works well, which is helping farmers to raise capital and helping investors add farmland to their portfolio. The largest updates within that are are one, this Acres platform that that we're now taking live. And we're really, really excited to help move the industry along with that. And the other is uh, we've applied for some regulatory licenses that allow us to work even more closely with the supply side of our business. So with the farmers as an example, and that's something that uh, we're uh, excited about the opportunity, the potential there. To have an even greater impact of bringing investment dollars into rural america
0: yeah sweet mark you got any more thoughts as we're starting to wind down here anything you're thinking about as far as uh, checking out all these properties or anything on uh, the future of what you guys are thinking about
2: we'd love to bring some new regions to the platform so the
0: pacific northwest is that sort of the napa of, of timberland world for the i feel like whenever i think of timberland i think of Pacific Northwest for some reason.
2: It's interestingly one of the few places that I have more requests from acre-traded people to visit with me when I go look at the property. No one wants to come to see Alabama when it's 110. And just during football
0: season. That's You just got to tie these into the right time of year.
1: Yeah, we're, we're from Arkansas. We specifically don't like Alabama. So that's, <laughs> no, that's a hard Yeah, word.
2: yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fair. And then uh, the Northeast, just we want to bring – these established markets to the platform so investors have the ability to choose and build diversification. So Pacific Northwest, Northeast, Appalachians, and again, just with the South being that core piece to start with. But uh, we had a uh, an offering in Arkansas that was all hardwood land. It was just a unique situation off-market and it was gone in three days because the story it was just, yeah, I was reading some innovation on the on the
0: wood technology market in general where some of these producers are kind of putting together some new wood composites that like sort of are more sustainable but rival like the structural components of steel, et cetera. That's interesting to me.
2: And that's a big part of where we see the long-term nature. Like we're, again, we're getting back to the situation. This is a long-term asset. The industry is long-term. So to your point, the structural Replacing of steel and concrete with uh, laminated lumber, it stores the carbon, has low lower energy input to produce that wood. It's less dis- disruptive to the neighborhood when it's being constructed. You don't have 50 or 100 cement trucks turning up. You've got a period of time where the building is, comes along in a kit form, basically, and it's assembled. And it's built. There was one just built less than a mile from my house here in Atlanta. And, uh, it was, it was up in three or four months All prefabricated structural lumber beams.
0: Gentlemen, this has been a whirlwind tour. Anything we missed, anything we need to talk about and we knew we go down to, we get, we hit a lot.
1: I think we covered it. I mean, we, you know, I, I always try to not be pitchy on your show. You know, it's like, how do you do it? It's easy to create an but, but outside of that, we're, we're good.
0: Well, to, to the listeners out there, I would suggest one thing to do. And that's to, whether you're going to buy or not, sign up for the Acre Trader email because I get a handful of these and you can set it up so it goes into a Gmail folder. So you don't even have to see it every day, but it's fun to sort of voyeur. And I do it with like masterworks on art. I do it with, you know, Angelus on investing, um, Vino Vest, on and on. Because um, I at least like to see and I like to review. And, and then once you start to review, I feel like enough I think I'm over well over 10,000 pitch decks, for example, on the angel side, you start to do some tying the dots together, understanding the verbiage, you know, you learn a lot. And so it's kind of fun to see, wait, blueberry farm, well, hold on, Australia. Anyway, sign up and at least start checking out the offerings. It's a lot of fun to read them and, and kind of get uh, get your boots dirty on the farm. Gentlemen, all right, so we can find you acres.co, acre trader, soon to be acres.com. Where else can we find you guys? What you're up to? Are those are the best spots?
1: Yeah, we got great teams online. So AcreTrader.com also just has lots of great content on it. So there's there's a lot to consume there, right? To go, even if you don't want to invest, just to go learn about it. It's fun to know where our food comes from and how and where our paper and and timber products come from. And we've got lots of great free resources there.
0: I don't know the answer to this, but do you guys have a uh, AcreTrader Instagram TikTok presence yet? Or have you joined the 21st century?
1: I don't. I have no idea how those things even work. Uh, but uh, we, we do have presence in all those places for sure. Oh my
0: God. You guys got all sorts of followers on uh, I mean, the, the, the farming community is a lot bigger than uh, people think. Very cool. Well, Acre Traders on uh, Insta. I don't know if you're on TikTok. We'll see. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. It was a blast catching up. Great to talk to you as always, man. We appreciate you. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at Mebfavor.com forward slash podcast.